0: My name's Jess Miles and welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. Globally, approximately 800 million children are living below a poverty line of 3.2 US dollars a day. One billion children experience multiple deprivations in health, nutrition, education or standards of living. This is not because their families aren't caring for them. It's a failure of governments. The perpetuation of poverty across generations damages lives, weakens social cohesion and the economy, and undermines environmental sustainability. Today, I am speaking to Olivia de Schutter, Hugh Fraser, Anne-Catherine Guillaume, and Eric Malier, authors of a new book called The Escape from Poverty. Olivia de Schutter is Professor at the University Catholique de Louvain in Belgium, and the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. Hugh Fraser is Adjunct Professor at Maynooth University in Ireland, A former director of the Irish government's Combat Poverty Agency and an expert on child poverty and EU social policy. Anne-Catherine Guillot is senior researcher at the Luxembourg Institute of Socioeconomic Research. She ensured inter Alia the scientific coordination of two major international studies, which contributed to the design of the so-called European Child Guarantee in place in the European Union since June 2021. Eric Malia is International Scientific Coordinator in the same research institute as Anne-Catherine and manages the 38-country European Social Policy Analysis Network, funded by the European Union. If you've ever doubted the damage poverty does or felt unclear about the benefits of addressing it, please read The Escape from Poverty. It's open access and so free to download from the Policy Press website. The book examines the vicious cycles which perpetuate poverty from one generation to the next and why we should care. It outlines what needs to be done to eradicate it, taking us beyond economics to see poverty and inequality as a human right and a societal crisis that we all need to engage in. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for speaking to me today. So as we heard in the introduction, you have some really impressive credentials as an author group. Could we start with a bit about how you came together for this project? Eric, if you could talk to us about that.
1: Okay, Okay. many thanks, Jess, and many thanks for organising this uh, podcast interview. Uh, Yes, to start with, I would like to say that the book is in fact the result of a wonderful collective process, which started almost three and a half years ago, when Olivier contacted me in his capacity as United Nations Special Reporter on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. Olivier wanted to explore the possibility for my institute, LISA, as you mentioned, to provide him with scientific support for the preparation of a report on the intergenerational transmission of poverty, which he would present to the UN General Assembly. So I immediately accepted, and so did Anne Catherine and Hugh when I approached them and suggested them to join me in this endeavor. For more than twenty years, I had done a lot of research with both of them on various EU social policy issues, including in particular issues related to child poverty and uh, and child well-being. And we had just finished two in-depth studies for the European Commission on the so-called European Child Guarantee, which we'll probably uh, briefly present at some point. So, in the context of this scientific collaboration. And catherine you and I conducted comparative research into the phenomenon of intergenerational perpetuation of poverty, and we prepared also a background paper summarizing the research and proposing a list of recommendations on how to tackle this perpetuation. Together with Olivier and his team, we also organized a seminar with experts on the issue from all around the world, where our background paper was presented and reviewed, and we also had a meeting, a so-called participatory dialogue with ATD Fourth World. So that was the very, the very first step. And then drawing on the background paper, on the evidence gathered during the seminar meeting with ATD, and also drawing on many other sources, he and his team had been able to collect. Olivier prepared his report on the persistence of poverty, which he presented to the UN General Assembly in October 2021. So that was the second step. And finally... The third third step was simply that we realized the amount, the huge amount of evidence that the four of us had been able to collect on the issue of the intergenerational perpetuation of poverty. And we thought it would be useful to pull this together in a book on this issue that we would write together. So this is how we came, in fact, together for this project. But maybe one last thing I would like to, to add at this stage, if I may... Uh, The challenge which the four of us set to ourselves when preparing this book was to write a book that would build on solid academic research on the one hand, but on the the other hand, a book that at the same time would be accessible to a general readership, I would say without specialized knowledge or trading in, in the social sciences. So we also wanted to propose a book that would move beyond the symptoms to the root causes, a book that would seek to explain the mechanisms behind the perpetuation of disadvantage across gender generation, and also that would discuss the the impacts of this perpetuation, both on the households affected, of course, but also on the society as a whole. So a book that would also identify concrete policies that could contribute to breaking these vicious cycles. And and we very much hope that we have been broadly successful in, in reaching these objectives. Thank you.
0: I am. I'm very much a general reader um, and I found it very accessible. It is a brilliant, um, it's a brilliant balance between all the evidence and it's totally stacked with evidence. Um, but these ideas explained really clearly about, based on all your experience, about how to take things forward. So it's about intergen- the intergenerational persistence of poverty um, so, could you explain the factors that lead to this, and why you chose to focus on this particularly rather than poverty generally? Um, and also, if you could tell us a little bit about the nature and the extent of the challenge, um, Eric. Again, and then we'll go to Anne Catherine.
1: Okay. Yes. Uh, thank you. Well, the the uh, as you mentioned, Jessica, uh, the intergenerational perpetuation of poverty and also its close correlation with with joint poverty and inequality. In fact, the central concerns of the book, combating child poverty is key to ending its perpetuation, and ending its perpetuation, in turn, is key to reducing child poverty. So as I said earlier, our book seeks seeks to identify and to explain the main mechanisms that cause poverty at a point in time, and also, most importantly, the mechanisms that perpetuate poverty across generations, meaning parents who are poor tend to have children who are poor who in turn are more likely to become adults who are poor themselves, etc. And so how how can we indeed explain this dynamic? Uh, well, living in poverty means not only lacking sufficient income, but also having limited access to essential services, such as healthcare and nutrition, education, housing, employment prospects, etc. So few opportunities for saving, acquiring or inheriting assets, and also low coverage by social protection mechanism mean that, in fact, people experiencing poverty rarely have a chance to change their trajectories. Poverty-related stress and the erosion of people's aspirations, the erosion of self-confidence and the erosion of hope, also play important roles in perpetuating poverty. So all these various factors work in combination, reinforcing one another and creating the conditions the systematic forms of of exclusion.
2: Yes, thank, thank you, Eric. So let, let's take a few examples to show all these factors works in combination. Uh, we know that living in poverty during childhood increase the probability of health problems because of bad nutrition, poor condition, bad environment, and, and also low access to health care. And when the child grows up, the poor health, combined with low level of education, will result in lower employment perspectives. And this, in turn, may lead to low investments uh, in education and health care for the next generation, thus perpetuating poverty. And those, another example is, is linked to the fact that low-income households usually live in most often disadvantaged areas with few, fewer green areas, with lower quality public services, uh, because housing is not affordable elsewhere, simply. And as a result, children may have more health problems to housing conditions, bad environment, but they also have to attend lower quality schools. And um, as you can see, education is one of the key elements in transmission. It's not the only one, it's really important element in the transmission of poverty. Uh, across nearly all countries, the family background of a student is the most important predictor of learning outcomes. This is not only because of education costs, uh, also The opportunity cost of not working and going to school, but also because poor children tend to have access to lower quality schools and and because they are are less prepared than other children for formal education in terms of cognitive uh, abilities, social behaviour and so on. And discrimination also plays a role in all domains. Discrimination against certain ethnic groups, against women, against people with disabilities, but also against people in poverty. And 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 usually, when when people in poverty are asked about the experience of poverty, they they refer to the humiliation and negative stereotyping they face in a number of settings, uh, at school, at the hospital, in the administration, uh, in all the contacts they, they may have. So as you as you can imagine, these vicious circles happen in many domains of life and create step by step the impossibility to escape from poverty or once adults. And then this story is being repeated across generations. Um, but it's important to avoid any sense of fate. Uh, as we
0: show in the book, there's impact can be uh, reverted. They are not even inevitable. Thank you. Thank you. It's also kind of threaded together, isn't it? All these different factors and it's almost every. Aspect of life, isn't it? Is part part of it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, the book. I'm glad you mentioned stigma as well because that's so important, isn't it? Yeah, um, the book takes a real global view, um, and you acknowledge the important structural differences between studying intergenerational poverty in developing and in Western settings. So, how does intergenerational poverty impact developed and developing countries differently? Olivia, if you could speak to this.
3: Yes, thank you, Jessica. I think it's important to acknowledge this paradoxical situation in which, on the one hand, there are very stark differences between intergenerational perpetuation of poverty in developing countries, poor countries on the one hand, and uh, the same phenomenon in rich countries on the other hand. And yet, there are striking similarities. What is different, of course, is that. In poor countries, poverty is seen as a structural issue that affects a large number of uh, individuals. And therefore, it is seen as a matter of um, development, of creating economic growth in order to allow the government to invest in health, education, uh, housing, and to create the conditions that will allow uh, all society to flourish. In rich countries, uh, quite uh, disturbingly, Um, Although we have the means, the resources to do more to combat poverty, paradoxically, um, we fail. And we fail because in rich societies, in affluent societies, poverty is seen as a failure of the individual. The dominant idea remains to a large extent that if one remains poor in a society that is otherwise generally rich, it is because that person has failed to make the right choices, to seek the right qualifications, to attend the appointments and so on. So the paradox is that rich countries, although they're best equipped to address poverty and to take it more seriously, um, tend to do the least because of this idea that the failure is that of the individual rather than that of society as a whole. And yet, despite these stark differences, What is uh, also quite uh, remarkable is that when you ask people in poverty to speak about their experience of poverty, they describe very much the same experience, whether they are based in in rich countries or in poor countries. There was, in fact, a a study done on six countries by ATD, Fourth World and Oxford University, Richard Walker and Robert Walker, sorry, and um, Rachel Bray in particular, And that study covered France, the UK, the USA in rich countries, and Bolivia, Tanzania, and Bangladesh in developing countries. And what was striking is that across all these countries, although people in poverty spoke about the lack of income, the lack of decent work, they also spoke about discrimination, about abuse, about not recognizing the experience they have as people in poverty, what we call epistemic injustice. In other terms, these hidden dimensions of poverty that go beyond what usual measures of poverty take into account. And so there was a striking similarity in how people spoke about the experience of being socially excluded across all societies.
0: That's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And um, the narrative around poverty in wealthier countries becomes a justification, doesn't it, for not addressing poverty? And that's the massive problem. and it's a problem that we should all like care about, but we kind of don't. It's very easy to see it as an issue over here and switch off from it, I think for a lot of people. But the evidence in the book makes clear that poverty actually damages all of us um, by undermining social cohesion. There's a massive economic toll, it reduces productivity and increases like family insecurity and I'm sure lots and lots of other things that Hugh, could you speak a little bit about what would be the benefits to society of addressing the situation?
4: Yes, thanks, Jess. Um, I think very wide ranging. I think the benefits would be both social and economic and environmental. Just to look at the the, the social aspect. Um, First of all, I think if we were addressing successfully uh, um, poverty, we would have societies with much greater solidarity and social cohesion. We'd have a more inclusive and equal society with less alienation, despair and hopelessness. Um, This would foster a sense of hope and optimism amongst those who are currently feel trapped and on the margins and excluded. This would then reduce alienation and division in society and contribute to more stable and inclusive democracies that respect everybody's fundamental rights. Um, It would also ensure, I think, that everybody feels that they have a stake in society and that this would increase civic participation in social and cultural life. And that would, I think, help to lessen the risk of people becoming attracted to populist and far-right extremism and undermining democratic systems. Our societies would be richer and more diverse, as those currently on the margins would be enabled to reach their full potential and become active participants and contributors to the society in which they're living. And our political systems hopefully would be enhanced and the excessive political influence of the wealthiest groups would be reduced. There'll be a more balanced um, political system. So we would have a healthier society as well. Again, I think this was something Anne Catherine was referring to the effects of of, of poverty on ill health. So we would have people who would be healthier, um, they would draw better physical and mental health. Our societies would be more peaceful. There would be less violence, drug and alcohol abuse, and antisocial ab- behavior. I'm sure there would be a reduction in suicides in society if more people felt part of that society. And all of that would mean we would have a better society for fostering and supporting stable families, there would be a reduction in poverty, would help to reduce family insecurity and break up rating that rises from poverty related stress. So, those are all sort of social and civic advantages. But then I think there are also very important economic benefits for all of us uh, um, if we successfully address the inequalities behind poverty. The economy would benefit as there would be a reduction in economic inefficiency and a waste of human resources and potential that is the current situation. More people would achieve their full potential, take up decent jobs, and unemployment and low-skilled work would be reduced. Um, this would, I think, would it contribute to increased economic productivity. Um, and also, I think it's very important in ageing societies, we can't afford to waste the potential of people. We need everybody who is able to participate in society. Then the other side of the economic argument is there will be a cost savings. The costs associated with unemployment will be significantly reduced. The demands on health services and social services and the costs of tackling crime will be reduced. And also it's been estimated in the US that every dollar spent on reducing childhood poverty would save at least $7 spent on addressing the economic costs of poverty. So this would free up resources to invest in improving the economy and society that would be in the interest of all of us. So in effect, economically tackling um, poverty and the causes of the intergenerational inheritance of poverty is a positive investment in society with a very big return for everybody. And then, just finally, I would stress the environmental aspect. Um, There would be significant benefits in terms of the environment, as poverty often leads to people putting more pressure on the environment. Also, I think more equal societies tend to use finite national resources in a more efficient and sustainable way. And it would be easier, I think, to get support for the profound changes that we need to make to address the world's environmental crisis if we build more inclusive and more equal societies. So we have, therefore, important environmental as well as economic and social benefits that will be good for not just people in poverty, but for all of us.
0: That's amazing. Um, There's so much. And it really just comes down to, like, if everyone feels valued and has a role to play and is healthy, then people are less likely to commit crime. They're more likely to be invested in... Sustainability projects and things. So, one of the things I valued most about the book um, is this idea that it's more than money. And it's quite a radical idea, really, I think. But um, it's not just low incomes that are the problem, but inequality generally, as we've spoken about, and how it goes across all areas of society. So you talk about redistribution of wealth via taxation and public services and the importance of holding on to the welfare state. But you do really importantly take the discussion further to explain how, and we've mentioned this already, in more unequal countries, it is more difficult for children raised in low income households to overcome that initial disadvantage. Um, so can I know we've covered it a little bit already, but can you explain specifically the role of inequality in perpetuating poverty? Olivier, can you speak to this one?
3: Yes, it's important to to realise that for many people, uh, there is a presumption that uh, some degree of inequality is actually a good thing to stimulate uh, efforts, to motivate people, to seek training and to work more, etc. In fact, however, what the data show is that the more society is unequal, the less there is social mobility, the less, in other terms, it is possible for uh, children to overcome the disadvantage that results from them being raised in in low-income households. And that is a phenomenon that economists now call the the great Gatsby curve, uh, an allusion to the novel of Scott Fitzgerald uh, that describes the um, exceptional rise from being a bootlegger to, to becoming a a member of the New York uh, Jet Society, if you wish, in that in that novel. The reality is that in deeply unequal societies that tolerate important uh, wealth and income inequalities, it is much more difficult to um, overcome the obstacles uh, that you face uh, when you are raised in, in poverty, because you have less access to social networks, you have less access to um, role models, um, you are not able to invest in seeking improved education and, and training, and you cannot imagine a different future for yourself, for your children, which uh, some social scientists call the aspirations gap. You simply cannot imagine a, a future that is better for yourself um, because you don't have these real opportunities that present uh, themselves. In other terms, uh, the persistence of inequalities is a major obstacle to social mobility. And the more society is unequal, the more people are stuck um, in poverty, uh, once they are raised in low income backgrounds.
0: The opportunity thing is really important, isn't it? And you say in the book that true equality of opportunities requires that we do more to ensure that we reduce disparities in children's access to resources. So you argue that creating equality of opportunity can be done by creating an inclusive economy. Um, Hugh, what what does an inclusive economy look like?
4: Well, I think just to stress that In saying that, an inclusive economy is part of the equation, but we do need to also keep good redistributive policies, progressive taxation systems, but we are recognizing the limits of that. We need to get, in a sense, behind that and deal with some of the causes. And our concern is about having economies at the present that tend to be rather exclusive and actually generate and perpetuate inequality. So we want to develop a regenerative and inclusive economy. That's an economy, in a sense, that involves everybody and gives a role for everybody to participate effectively in that economy and to create greater um, quality of opportunity for everyone in a society to participate in that society. And in arguing for that, we suggest sort of three things that could help to take us in that direction. Um, the first is that we really need to develop an economy that is a, based on a job-rich model of development. And we suggest that this means going beyond recognizing the right to work to actually guaranteeing the right to work through a job guarantee. and. In this, the services that could be provided would benefit both the individual and the society, and it would give value to things that presently maybe the market doesn't value in, and therefore doesn't create create jobs and employment, but are actually necessary for all of us for an inclusive society. Um, Then the second thing that we suggest that would help to move us into more to more inclusive economy is to develop a basic income for young adults, um, which would ensure particularly young people who, when they're leaving school up to the age of about 25, who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds and perhaps the all the efforts in remedial education and other supports haven't been sufficient to get them into the labour market, it would give them the opportunity to get a foothold in the labour market and to be participating fully in society. And the advantage of a basic income approach would be, I think, firstly that it avoid it would be universal, so it avoids the problems of targeted and stigma that arises from from tar- targeted approaches. Um, I think it would also be easier to sell politically because it would be in the interest of. Everybody with young people that they would benefit from this. And it also by limiting it to that particular age group to get them involved in the economy, I think it would become economically variable. If you had to, if you extended a basic income scheme through the whole of society, and I know this is a, quite a controversial area, that becomes very costly and you might have to cut back in other areas, but this would be possible. And we also suggest that it could actually uh, um, be funded through an inheritance tax. Um, And that would also help to address the problems of inequality, because it would reduce some of the inequalities that result from inheriting wealth from one generation to the other and perpetuate the problems of inherited wealth creating poverty. Um, And then the third area that that we particularly focus on in in the book is, is the introduction of a prohibition of discrimination on the grounds of socioeconomic disadvantage. And I think one of the things that we highlight a lot in the the analysis in the book is the extent to which discrimination is a factor in causing poverty. Um, And we need to look at how we ensure that there isn't discrimination across a whole range of society. We need to test every policy as it's introduced to ensure it is not discriminating people on the grounds of, of being in poverty. Now, this is an area I think Olivia might be interested in elaborating on because it's very much his area of expertise. Um, but I think those three things would help to move us towards a more inclusive and balanced economy, uh, um, which would also be more regenerative.
0: Yes, that last point is particularly interesting. And I think perhaps something that hasn't been discussed quite so much in other books. Olivia, did you have anything to add to that?
3: I think it's important to realise that part of the reason why people in poverty uh, face obstacles, making it difficult for them to overcome this disadvantage, is um, the obstacles they face due to to the persistence of stereotypes about people in poverty, what some people call povertyism, that I believe we should address like we address racism or sexism or homophobia. There are many negative stereotypes about people in poverty that results in those people losing confidence in their ability to improve their situation and results in them finding it more difficult to have access to housing, to um, um, employment, um, to education, if you are bullied in in schools, if you are um, harassed by your uh, co-workers uh, uh, because you cannot uh, master the cultural codes or you cannot meet social expectations. So that is why the prohibition of discrimination against people in poverty is also important. It's because it's a way to react to these negative stereotypes, about people in poverty that that still persists.
0: Absolutely, thank you. Um, so as well as the inclusive economy, there are many more um, policies and actions that you present in the book that we need to combat child poverty and break these vicious cycles um, of poverty and disadvantage. Um, so what are some concrete examples of good practices? And Catherine?
2: Yeah, there are many examples. Huh? One example is the Bolsa Familia, uh, implemented in Brazil since 2003. Uh, it's a program of conditional cash transfers to family with children which are below a certain level of income and who comply with specific conditions related to health, vaccination, health check of children, and also school attendance of children. Children have to go to school the majority of the time. And after a few years, um, actually, this program became the world's largest conditional transfer program in the world because reaching more than 11 million families... Uh, having a low income and fulfilling this condition of uh, uh, children going to school and uh, having vaccination and, and health check. Um, and, and so the, the studies analyzing the impact of this program show that uh, there was a huge impact on the school performance of these children with less dropout, better school progression rates, lower school repetition. So it really helped to reduce the educational inequality between these children and the other children in the country and also to to, to break this this perpetuation of poverty across generation. And it it has also an impact on food security, on on the health of of children. And the the majority of the success can be attributed to the combination of the cash transfers with conditionality, uh, which allows the Polsa Familia program to boost all salt consumption in in the short term with the cash transfers, but also providing, providing an incentive to invest in the long term, of the, in in the human capital development of the the children. Fortunately, from 2015, this uh, this program uh, had a major cut and it it disappeared in 2007, but I think that recently it was relaunched in in Brazil. There are many other examples in in different domain. The, The school misprovision, Is another example in India. For example, the midday meals provided at school came to be seen one of the India's most effective social programs, having an impact of uh, of on nutrition, on on health of children, uh, on achievement uh, at school, on school attendance, and so on. So there are there are many major impact on the on the immediately life of children of, of, of these programs. Another famous example in in the domain of childcare is provided by the ASCO Perry preschool program launched in the 16th in the the US. And and it was uh, an active uh, learning program for very young children, three, four years, uh, children from disadvantaged families. Um, And it led to a, a long longitudinal documentary uh, work that continues today and that can show that the children we were um a- actively involved in this program in the 60s uh, but became adults and that their children themselves and their children became adults so, and and so we can see across generation the impact of this program and and so the 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 researcher can show that this the, the has an impact on on the on the the, the performance at school, on the employment possibilities of these people, but also on the social risk of the probability of crimes of uh, young pregnancy and so on. So w- we have a lot of research showing that uh, many programs can work. Of course, the condition matters. So we really need to analyze what, what can work uh, and, and how oh, we can make them work best. But it's important to to have all this information in mind when when you think about the, the possibilities to break the, the, the persistence of poverty.
0: was the um, European child guarantee? Yeah, that's a more ex-
2: That's a more recent example at the EU level. So the Council of the EU adopted the European Child Guarantee, which will ensure that children in need in all member states has effective and free access to childcare education, including school-based activities, uh, a healthy meal each school day, and health care, so free and effective access to these four domains, and also effective access to housing and nutrition. So it's extremely promising. We we are at the beginning of the progress, so we are very curious to see the evolution in different member states, but it's crucial uh, to avoid the perpetuation of poverty in Europe.
0: Thank you. It's really nice to hear about all these programs and policies and initiatives that are already happening. Um, So this is my final question. Um, Your book, The Escape from Poverty, lays out the evidence incredibly clearly. um, But we know that despite all the evidence and despite the obvious facts that tackling child poverty um, is important to us all and will improve society generally, Sometimes it's quite hard to get people to believe that change is possible and that it doesn't necessarily have to be complicated. One of the calls you make in the final chapter of the book um, is to raise public and political awareness, um, which I think is something individual listeners here may want to do and may want to take away from this episode. Um, So could you give us some advice on how we start to get people behind the ideas in your book? Eric
1: uh, yes, thank you, Jess. That's indeed an, uh, uh, an important question so how to concretely making it happen and how to involve people in, in this process. So by by identifying both the mechanisms perpetuating the disadvantage and also the factors obstructing both political action, uh, our book intends to be uh, I would say a wake-up call to governments. Uh, A wake-up call to encourage them to place the fight against poverty, social exclusion and inequality is at the top of their political agenda. So I hope we have been able to convince many listeners that combating child poverty is not something that can wait. Something that is not a luxury that should be postponed until more auspicious economic times. So combating poverty is in fact an ingredient for sustainable and inclusive economic prosperity it is essential, as was already mentioned, for strengthening social cohesion, rebuilding social capital, and also ensuring that the fundamental rights of all children are upheld. So, Jessica, in our book, we argue indeed, as as you said, that in developing effective approaches to tackling child poverty and combating the intergenerational perpetuation of poverty, it is essential to raise public and political awareness along these lines. So, more concretely, I'd like to make three points on this awareness issue which will largely echo in fact what has already been said today by uh, by by Hugh well, and Olivia in particular. Uh, so through public and political awareness campaigns we need to make everybody convinced of both the positive benefits for children in society of tackling intergenerational perpetuation of poverty and also of the huge cost of not doing so. So we have to explain, in fact, that combating child poverty and the intergenerational disadvantage, uh, perpetuation, sorry, of disadvantage, is of course a requirement first of all, based on children's fundamental rights, but not only. As as, as Hugh and then and, and, and Olivia explained in detail, it's also an investment, a highly profitable investment. Okay, and not just a cost which puts uh, additional pressure on public finances, an investment that. Brings returns indeed in the short, medium and long term, which was also mentioned, an investment that is necessary for the whole society, all of us, an investment that is needed for improving social cohesion uh, and also for making the economy more resilient. So these utilitarian aspects are probably important to convince people that it is indeed cost effective. Uh, it's good also for social and environmental sustainability. So this is my, my first main point. Second point, uh, much quicker, is that we have to kill off the myth and stereotypes about people in poverty that lead them to be blamed for their poverty and which are too often used as an excuse for inaction. And, and then Catherine already mentioned this several times. So people can contribute to countering these myths and stereotypes in their personal life, every day, everywhere. And finally, my, my my third point is that this increased awareness should then be turned into a clear national commitment to end child poverty, to reduce inequality, and thus, in fact, to combat the intergeneration perpetuation of disadvantage. And so in this, in, in, in this aspect, in, I would like to highlight the role, key role, in fact, of appropriate quantitative targets. So the setting of targets requires indeed measuring progress on achieving them. This raises public and political awareness. This improves accountability and also increases the political cost of inaction. Setting targets also fosters important debates on policy and programmatic solutions and thereby increases pressure to gradually improve policies that fail to deliver results. So these are concrete actions that people can can you know uh, can be involved in uh, can create can boost so just a concrete example of of a target uh which I think is was a really a major step forward uh, in 2021 in the context of the implementation of the European uh, pillar of social rights the EU agreed a target to be achieved by 2030 namely to reduce the number of people at risk of poverty or social exclusion by at least fifteen million, of which at least five million should be children. And I think that this kind of targets, okay, with regular reporting and regular request for accountability to decision makers, is really key. So I stop here, but maybe maybe Hugh would like to add a few a few elements on this because it's also very much a a field he has been working on
4: yeah, thanks, Eric. And um, I absolutely agree with your, your three areas you've highlighted as being extremely important. Just a few other practical things that I think help in raising awareness. First of all, I firmly have always believed that giving a voice to people of their lived experience of being in poverty and making that voice heard in society is really important. The work I currently do with groups in ATD in, in Ireland and the community groups in Dublin's inner city we spend a lot of time in trying to ensure the experience of people in poverty is heard in society and in the political system uh, and helping to overcome the political powerlessness that often exists with poverty. Um, Then I think a second thing that helps to convince people is actually to highlight good examples. I mean, and Catherine was talking about examples of things that work we need to show how people's lives have been changed by successful policies and make that visible and show that if you invest it has results that people can relate relate to um i think another very important thing that has led to change in some countries is having finding political champions it's very interesting that the developments on child poverty in new zealand really have happened dramatically when jacinda ardern as Prime Minister there took that on. And interestingly, we have an example here in Ireland where our Taoiseach, when he became Taoiseach, announced that he was going to make child poverty one of his key issues for government to achieve progress on, and actually has set up a unit in his own department at the heart of government. And that is leading to very interesting things happening in Ireland, and a new sense that poverty and tackling child poverty is a priority, and it's putting much pressure on the whole system to do more to deliver. So trying to cultivate political champions at senior levels who will make it a priority in their policies is really important. Then I think always a focus on children is something that appeals to people. People want to do their best for their children. They can understand the need for others. It's very difficult to blame children for being poor. So by putting the focus on child poverty, I think you can get support for doing things that are good for all children. Um, one other area that I'm not quite sure how you do it, but I think we need to think more about how you engage with the creative sector, with artists, with playwrights, with musicians, with novelists and with filmmakers and get them on side to support us all, not just us as social scientists and community activists, but try and engage people in the creative sense to spread the message about the need to tackle poverty. And then I suppose just the final area that I think would help to convince people is to make the connection that exists between poverty and environmental crisis and that the benefits of tackling poverty is an important element in addressing our environmental crisis. And I think that a lot of people, if they understood that clearer and the connections, that would appeal to them to get involved. So there are lots of practical things that can be done. Some are quite high level. Some are individual things that people can do. But I think we could all do things that will make a significant difference and get poverty much more centrally on government's agendas.
0: That's amazing. What a list to finish on. And I just want to really, really quickly summarize it. So it's really clear for people. I think there are about nine points you made there. So remind people it's cost effective, kill off the myths and stereotypes. And we can do that in the conversations we have Um, needs, clear national commitments with targets, Um, give a voice to people in poverty. That's something we'd try to do with the transforming society blog and podcast. And I'd be interested in exploring that more Um, talk about examples of things that work, um, have political champions, bring the focus to children because that's appealing and engaging, um, get the creative sector involved. That's really interesting as well. Um, and finally talk to people about how it relates to the environmental crisis. Um, again, that's a huge thing that we all care about at the moment. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, Eric and Catherine, Hugh and Olivier, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for writing the book. It's a really, really important one. Um, the Escape from Poverty, Breaking the Vicious Cycles, Perpetuating Disadvantage by Olivia DeShuta, Hugh Fraser and Catherine Gio and Eric Malia is available to download free via open access from the Policy Press website. You can find out more at policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. Thank you, everyone.
1: Many thanks, Jessica. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks.